Hey, this is Paul Starr with another podcast for law institutions and public policy. As part of our discussion of judicial institutions, we return this week to the subject of constitutions, which came up earlier in the semester as part of our consideration of nation states and national law. As we said then, constitutions are laws about the making of laws and about what laws cannot be made. But who decides whether a constitution allows or forbids a particular law? In many, but not all, legal systems, that's a role for the courts or for a particular kind of court, a constitutional court, exercising the function of constitutional judicial review. To write a provision into a constitution is generally to make it more difficult to change than if the same provision were adopted in an ordinary legislative statute. The common term for this choice is constitutional entrenchment, which can refer to two levels of constraint. In the most common usage, constitutional entrenchment means writing a rule into a constitution, which can then only be changed by a constitutional amendment. In addition, the constitutions of many countries entrench some clauses in an even stronger way by designating them as unamendable. For example, Article 5 of the U.S. Constitution bars any amendment depriving a state of its, quote, equal suffrage in the Senate. That is the rule that each state gets two senators. That provision was so important in the bargain struck at the Constitutional Convention in 1787 that the founders sought to make it irreversible. No amendment to that provision would be allowed. An effort to give more populous states greater representation in the U.S. Senate would arguably have to replace the Constitution entirely through a new constitutional convention or a revolution. Similarly, Germany's basic law includes a, quote, eternity clause prohibiting any change in certain provisions, uh, such as those guaranteeing the inviolability of human dignity and human rights and the federal structure of the German state. Eternity clauses are the highest degree of entrenchment the law can aspire to provide. Usually, however, when people talk about constitutional entrenchment, they're referring to provisions in a constitution that do allow for amendments. Constitutional rules are more firmly entrenched when amendments require the approval not just of one legislative chamber, but of two, and not just by a majority, but by a supermajority, and where they must also be approved by majorities or supermajorities of constituent state or provincial legislatures or by popular referendum. So constitutions vary a great deal in how rigid or flexible they are. Imagine the process of amendment as an obstacle course. A more rigid constitution has more hurdles and higher hurdles for making amendments. A more flexible constitution has fewer hurdles and lower ones for making amendments. We can think of each hurdle as a veto point, a point where an amendment can be stopped. The institutions or people who can stop them are veto players. The height of the hurdles on the obstacle course are the thresholds that have to be reached to overcome the vetoes. For example, a vote of two-thirds or even three-quarters of a legislative body. To put this in more formal terms, the greater the number of veto players, 
and the higher the threshold for overcoming each veto, the greater is the rigidity of the Constitution. To be sure, entrenchment doesn't always prevent constitutional rules from being reinterpreted. In countries with constitutional courts and judicial review, judges may be able to change constitutional doctrine, and political leaders may do so through judicial appointments. So constitutional entrenchment also depends on judicial doctrine and practice, the extent of constitutional fidelity, and the extent of judicial autonomy from political control. So how does the U.S. Constitution itself provide for constitutional change? According to measures of constitutional rigidity based on the procedures for amendments, the United States has one of the most rigid constitutions of any country in the world. Amendments have to run a very tough obstacle course. Now let me read to you the relevant language in Article 5 of the Constitution. The Congress, whenever two-thirds of both houses shall deem it necessary, shall propose amendments to this Constitution or, on the application of the legislatures of two-thirds of the several states, shall call a convention for proposing amendments, which in either case shall be valid to all intents and purposes as part of this Constitution when ratified by the legislatures of three-fourths of the several states, or by constitutions in three-fourths thereof, as the one or the other mode of ratification may be proposed by the Congress. Okay, that's a mouthful. What it boils down to is two procedures for initiating amendments and two procedures for ratifying them. An amendment can be initiated if it passes with a supermajority of two-thirds in both the House and the Senate. Or a new constitutional convention may initiate amendments by a vote of two-thirds of the states. Then those amendments, in either case, must be ratified by an even great, greater supermajority of three-fourths of the states, either by their state legislatures or by state constitutional conventions, as Congress may determine. In other words, a minority of one-third plus one in either the House or Senate, or just one-quarter plus one of the states, can veto an amendment. Although Article 5 allows for a new constitutional convention, and for conventions in each state to ratify amendments, we've actually never had a second constitutional convention and only once used state conventions for ratifying purposes. That provision for a new constitutional convention, however, is a ticking time bomb in the Constitution because someday we could very well hit the two-thirds threshold of states calling for a convention and there are no rules for how it would work. So no one knows what the outcome of a new constitutional convention might be. So far, however, the standard route for amendments has been a two-thirds vote by each House of Congress, followed by approval by the legislatures of three-fourths of the states, a very high hurdle, which is why over the past 230 years, we've had remarkably few constitutional amendments. The assigned readings take up two distinct questions. One reading questions whether the Article 5 procedure accurately captures how the greatest constitutional changes in American history have taken place. The other reading is a qualified defense of constitutional inflexibility, and I'm going to begin with that. That's the chapter on the democratic functions of constitutional inflexibility from a book called Constitutional Self-Government by Christopher Eisgruber. 
You may have come across Mr. Eisgruber's name in another context, but we meet him here in his role as a distinguished analyst of constitutional law. Eisgruber notes that several other constitutional scholars see inflexible constitutions as undemocratic because they maintain the so-called dead hand of the past and don't allow popular majorities to make constitutional changes whenever they want. But in this chapter, Eisgruber offers a series of reasons why democracies benefit from constitutional inflexibility. More flexible constitutions, he suggests, might make it difficult to sustain a stable democratic foundation for decision-making. For example, flexible amendment procedures might allow a majority at one historical moment to consolidate power, quote, at the expense of the people as a whole. Or to put it differently, a failure to entrench constitutional rules may allow for the entrenchment of power because it would allow incumbents to alter the constitutional rules to their own advantage. In the extreme case, constitutional flexibility might allow a so-called constitutional coup, whereby a government effectively disempowers the opposition and ensures its own perpetuation in office. That's exactly what happened in Germany in 1933 when Hitler took power, and it has happened again more recently in countries like Hungary. Flexible amendment procedures may also, as Gruber points out, encourage majorities to constitutionalize a greater range of policies and decisions, and so constrict the range of choices available to later generations. And he notes that, quote, easy amendability may also encourage a short-term perspective. Constitutional inflexibility, in contrast, encourages constitution makers to think about future generations, or at least it should do so. So the central question in the Eisgruber chapter is the choice between constitutional flexibility and rigidity. Eisgruber makes a case for constitutions like ours that are short but hard to amend. He begins by discussing a distinction that we've discussed before between specific concrete rules, such as two senators per state, and more abstract principles, such as no state shall deny its citizens the equal protection of the laws. Originalists want us to interpret both kinds of provisions as they were understood when they were adopted, that is, in the 18th century for the original Constitution, or in the case of the 14th Amendment for the period after the Civil War. Eisgruber says that the specific concrete rules are unambiguous and must be read that way, but the more abstract principles have to be given the best interpretation we can make of them today. In a memorable example, Eisgruber asks us to imagine a dying man who asks his grandson to promise to eat only quote, healthy foods. The dying man always believed that raw fish were unhealthy, but his grandson discovers that sushi are healthy. Does the grandson violate his promise to his grandfather by eating sushi? No, Eisgruber says. The grandson has merely updated his concept of what healthy foods are. In the same way, justices have to update abstract principles such as equal protection of the laws. So in this respect, Eisgruber is taking the perspective known as living constitutionalism, but with a strong dose of constitutional inflexibility and fealty to the constitutional text in its express rules. 
Okay, now let me turn to Bruce Ackerman's We the People, a three-volume work written over a quarter century that offers a comprehensive theory of constitutional change in the United States and a distinctive way of both explaining and interpreting it. Ackerman contends that most people in law and political science have a mistaken understanding of constitutional change in America because they believe that the only legitimate path is through the provisions in Article 5. He insists that the most important changes have occurred in ways that violate the strict procedures laid out in Article 5. These changes, he argues, have come at distinct constitutional moments, periods of intense public deliberation over the foundations of American law and society, and the legitimacy of these higher lawmaking moments has been confirmed at each point through the eventual acceptance of the change by all three branches of the federal government and in subsequent elections. This is Ackerman's theory of what he calls dualist democracy. Dualist because it conceives of democracy as involving two tracks, normal everyday politics and constitutional politics. Ackerman argues that dualist democracy is appropriate for people whose involvement varies from decade to decade. Now here's what he says in volume two. I'm going to quote him. During periods of constitutional politics, the higher lawmaking system encourages an engaged citizenry to focus on fundamental issues and determine whether any proposed solution deserves its considered support. During periods of normal politics, the system prevents the political elite from undermining the hard-won achievements of the people behind the citizenry's back, requiring leaders to return to the people and mobilize their considered support before foundational principles may be revised in a democratic way. Okay, so dualist democracy isn't just Ackerman's belief in how constitutional change should happen. He argues that this is, quote, how American institutions have in fact operated to organize popular debate and decision during our most creative periods of constitutional politics. Each of the three historical episodes of higher lawmaking, according to Ackerman, involve a generation and more of political change, political agitation, followed by a decade of decisive change. These decades were the 1780s, the 1860s, and the 1930s. Now, perhaps rather shockingly, Ackerman suggests that in all these cases, the key actors did not follow the existing rules of the game, the existing rules for constitutional change. In fact, he writes, I'm going to quote him, neither founding Federalists nor Reconstruction Republicans nor New Deal Democrats showed deep respect for established modes of constitutional revision. They changed them in the very process of changing the substance of fundamental values, from loose confederation to federal union, from slavery to freedom, from laissez-faire to the activist regulatory state. But contrary to those who see these violations of existing rules as arbitrary and undemocratic, Ackerman insists that they were democratically ratified and democratically vindicated. To quote him again, while Federalists, Republicans, and Democrats failed to follow well-established rules and principles, they experienced powerful institutional constraints on their revisionary authority. And those institutional constraints were the forces that ultimately made these democratically fair. So more specifically, 
I'm going to go now into these three constitutional moments that um, are the basis of this three-volume history of the Constitution in America. At the founding, the drafting and ratification of the Constitution violated the rules for constitutional change under the Articles of Confederation. The, Constitu the, the Continental Congress had authorized the Constitutional Convention only to propose amendments, not to write a new Constitution. And under the Articles, Congress had to approve and all 13 states had to agree to any changes in the Articles. But the new Constitution written in Philadelphia um, actually was never approved by the Continental Congress. And the new Constitution provided for ratification by only nine states, not all 13. When that new Constitution went into effect, it did so without two of the states, North Carolina and Rhode Island. In fact, Rhode Island agreed to ratify the Constitution only after it was threatened with an embargo on all trade and a demand for payment of all debts. That's what today would be called constitutional hardball. The adoption of the Reconstruction Amendments is also a story of constitutional hardball. Lincoln resorted to hardball tactics in getting Congress to pass the 13th Amendment abolishing slavery. The 14th Amendment provided, providing for equal protection of the laws was adopted in 1868 only because the federal government put the southern states that had joined the Confederacy under military rule and stipulated that military rule would end only when those states had ratified the 14th Amendment and the amendment had become part of the Constitution. During this period in the late, late 1860s, while Lincoln's successor, Andrew Johnson, was president, the radical Republicans in Congress decided to shrink the Supreme Court to seven justices to prevent Johnson from nominating any new justices. They didn't trust him. Then when Ulysses Grant was elected president in 1868, Congress re-expanded the court back to nine so Grant could make those appointments. Now, that was another example of constitutional hardball. During the 1930s, Franklin Roosevelt confronted a crisis when the court struck down key New Deal legislation. After being re-elected in 1936, Roosevelt sought to do what the Republicans had done after the Civil War, to control the court. Roosevelt proposed increasing the number of justices from 9 to 15. That effort failed, but the court got the message and approved New Deal legislation, so the Social Security Act and other uh, laws weren't uh, struck down. As the phrase went, a switch in time saved nine. On the basis of these historical cases, Ackerman proposes a general model of constitutional change, which you can find summarized on the list of key terms for this week. In each case, that moment began with a constitutional impasse and an initial mandate for change, then continued with a challenge to a resisting or dissenting institution. Ultimately, that dissenting institution gave way and the uh, changes were uh, ratified in a consolidating election uh, that, uh, that ended the period of constitutional change. In Ackerman's view, although we've had one constitution since set in 1787, we've actually had three distinct constitutional regimes. The early republic from the revolution to the civil war, the middle republic from reconstruction to the new deal, and the modern republic resulting from the New Deal and the Civil Rights Revolutions. The result of these three constitutional transformations is in Ackerman's word, words, <clears throat> a powerful national government with unquestioned authority to secure the legal equality and economic welfare of all its citizens. 
Ackerman's story about constitutional change is that it has reflected not strict compliance with Article 5, but rather acts of popular sovereignty, <clears throat> moments when democratic forces overcame the impediments of an inflexible constitution. It's an optimist, optimistic take on our constitutional history. Besides these constitutional moments creating legal equality, we've also had reverse moments, when those advances have been undermined in part through the interpretation of the constitutional provisions by the Supreme Court, as in the notorious case of the court's interpretation of the 14th Amendment in the years after the Civil War, or in many of the court's decisions in recent decades. And as the Galanter reading explains, many formal constitutional achievements are not reflected in the actual working of the legal system. They haven't penetrated what happens on the ground. So while both Eisgruber and Ackerman tell fundamentally positive stories about constitutional change in America, there's another side to those stories that we have to keep in mind as we discuss these issues in class and precepts. Thank you.